pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still, that we might hear from you. Amen. If the resurrection happened, last Sunday, which is to say Easter Sunday, I stressed these words, if the resurrection happened, stressing particularly that first word, if. For as I said last Sunday, an if always implies a then. And when it comes to the if, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the implications of the then are absolutely enormous. And because of that enormity, these next four weeks of the Easter season, I want us to focus on the enormous implications of this then. That is to say, on the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. For I believe that it is vital that we understand that remarkable, though such a miraculous event no doubt is, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is about far more than proving the miracle working power of God. For so much more than being a mere isolated miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, if indeed it happened, which I believe it did, if so, it is about the inauguration of an all-new reality. It is about the future that awaits us all, arriving momentarily in the present and giving us a sneak peek into what that future holds, what it looks like, what it will be like. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, so much more than a one-off, isolated miracle, is, as the Apostle Paul writes, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits. And that leads me to an important question. Do you know what the first fruits means? Literally speaking, that is. Do you know what Paul means when he says the first fruits? Because to understand what Paul means when he says this, and to understand why this is such a powerful and instructive way to talk about Jesus and his resurrection, because to first understand any of this other, we have to understand what first fruits meant in first century Judaism. And that was a whole lot of firsts in one sentence. That was a lot to get out. According to Leviticus and to Deuteronomy, every year at the season of Pentecost, Shavuot, every year at that season, faithful Jews were required to journey to Jerusalem with a first fruit offering from their fields. You see, because Pentecost would take place each year 
In the late spring, this was the time of the year when the first crops of the season would be beginning to emerge. And thus, faithful Jews were expected to bring a small portion of their nascent crop to the temple where they would leave this offering at the temple entrance, a first fruit offering meant to symbolize their faith in the fullness of the coming harvest. In other words, this small offering symbolized their belief that come the fullness of the harvest season, an entire crop of these very same fruits would indeed appear. That's what first fruits meant in the Jewish culture and imagination. And thus, when Paul writes that Jesus is, quote, the first fruits of those who have died, he is saying that Jesus is far more than simply an example of God's miracle working power. Instead, Paul is saying, Jesus is an early example, a prototype, a forerunner of what will happen to all of us in him come the fullness of time. He is the first fruit offering, while we, Paul is saying, are the full crop that will spring forth like him come the fullness of time. That is what Paul is saying when he says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who've died. If the resurrection, then that, Paul is saying. If the resurrection of Jesus, then what happened to Jesus will likewise happen to and for us. If then. We have been deeply oversaturated in popular Christianity with what are actually sub-Christian ideas about resurrection and the afterlife. Consequently, we tend to have a very muddled idea of what resurrection really means. We hear ideas drawn primarily from Greek philosophy or Eastern religion about the human soul ascending to a purely spiritual realm upon death. And we then imagine resurrection to simply be another way of describing this spiritual ascent of the soul. That or we redefine resurrection to mean the mere continuation of life after death. But none of these things, strictly speaking, is resurrection. For resurrection, whether we believe such a thing is possible or not, regardless, resurrection has a very specific meaning. And that meaning has absolutely nothing to do with the ascent of human souls, and it has far more meaning than the mere continuation of life after death. For resurrection in the Jewish mind and imagination meant and still means the overcoming of death. Resurrection meant and still means the material bodily resurrection of the material bodily human being. 
Thus, this is what Paul means when he says, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He means that death quite literally has been and will ultimately be undone, unraveled, utterly reversed. Consider this closely. If one's soul merely continues on in some different state after death, then death has indeed won. For whatever else is happening in such a conception of the afterlife, it is decidedly not a triumph over death, at least not strictly speaking. Now, the only way for death to truly die, to paraphrase the poet John Donne, is for resurrection to take place which is to say for a dead and buried human being to return to a glorified state of biological life, a state of biological life substantially transformed, but nevertheless continuous with the biological life it had before death. Or to put this most clearly, for resurrection to take place, if we're going to use that word, for resurrection to take place, for death to truly be overcome, not simply redefined and reimagined, for resurrection to take place and for death to truly be overcome, one must experience that which Jesus of Nazareth experienced. And that, to put a point on it, that is the meaning and the essence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what happened to and for him will likewise happen to and for us. If, then. Listen to our gospel text again for this morning. The doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. But then Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. We talked last week about the words, Peace be with you, and about how these words described not a momentary emotion, but of how they instead announced the inbreaking of an all-new reality. We talked about that last week. And today I want us to consider how the inbreaking of this new reality and about how these words describing the appearance of the resurrected Jesus interface with the reality that immediately preceded it. The reality that is that had those disciples locked in a room for fear of what may happen to them. You know, one of the most remarkable facts of Christian history is the immediate 180 that happens in the disciples' lives in response to the appearance of the resurrected Jesus. It's truly astonishing. One moment the disciples are fearful to the point of death, the next moment, they fear not even death. One moment, the disciples are living under the governing conditions of one reality. The next moment, they are living under the governing conditions of an altogether different one. 
One moment, one thing, the next moment, another. And the only thing that has changed between moments, the only thing that is different between these two moments is that these once fearful disciples have now beheld the resurrected Jesus. That is the only thing that has changed. But that one change is all the change in the world. For with this change, the disciples know immediately that they no longer have to fear anything, not ultimately. For death, the ultimate fearsome thing, death, they now know, is no longer ultimate at all. And therefore is no longer something to be ultimately feared. Growing up, I can't tell you how many times I heard and sang the famous Bill and Gloria Gaither hymn, Because He Lives, as so many of you did as well. And as I would sing that hymn, I always focused my attention on the future hope conveyed by the lyrics. And well, I did. It's beautiful. But all these years later, it occurs to me that I never really paid close enough attention to these words about the here and now. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Perhaps it's because I was always too caught up in that vision of an eternal tomorrow. But somehow these words about the power of that eternal tomorrow for living life unafraid today, somehow those words never really registered with me. But now they do. For I now realize that this simple lyric aptly describes what the disciples experienced that first night upon their first glimpse of the resurrected Jesus. Because he lives, they knew, all fear ought therefore to be gone. Simply because of the resurrection and what it means. If. Thus it occurs to me that this simple lyric from the Gaithers captures well the first if-then that I want us to appreciate in this sermon series about the resurrection of Jesus and its many implications for life now. For if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then it ought necessarily to change the way that we understand and respond to Follow me here. If Jesus has not been resurrected, if that's just a pretty story, then by all means we have good reason for listening to and being led by our deepest fears. Because many of those things can and do come to pass. If Jesus has not been resurrected, then by all means, 
Let us wisely remain huddled inside these locked doors that we live so much of our lives hiding behind because there are things outside those doors that can hurt us. But if Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, well, in that case, all fear should be gone. And in that case, we ought then to strive to be bolder in taking to the streets with proclamations about the present inbreaking of God's kingdom. And in that case, we ought then to strive to be bolder in standing up for what is right and just and fair, no matter what it might cost us. And in that case, we ought then to strive to be bolder in taking risks for righteousness' sake, risks that we'd otherwise not dare to take. For if death has indeed been overcome, then the conditions that govern our living in the present have been with it likewise altered forevermore. If, then. Yes, in the end, the point of this first sermon in this series on the implications of the resurrection is incredibly simple. But in its simplicity, it is also, if fully appreciated, incredibly profound. That point being this. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, then we need not be ruled over by fear. For the fact of resurrection ensures us that death, the thing that we all fear the most, will ultimately be undone. And that when it is, we, like Jesus, the first fruits of those who have died, we too will rise from the dead in a transformed, glorified state, being like him, impervious to death forevermore. Yes, incredibly simple but likewise incredibly profound. Upon being presented with this simple but profound reality, those earliest disciples who'd been theretofore huddled in a locked room for fear suddenly took to the streets to fearlessly make known the inbreaking of God's just and peaceable kingdom. Well, so too today can the doors behind, we, behind which we ourselves so often hide be unlocked by the reality of the resurrected Jesus. And if you feel right now a tug at your heart, if you feel right now a sudden warmth or hear a strange yet somehow familiar whisper, know that this is the same resurrected Lord who appeared all those years ago to those earliest disciples, appearing to us anew today, saying to us as certainly as ever he said to them, it is I. Be not afraid. Amen. And I will now be down front to receive any this day who might want to follow this risen Jesus as Lord and Savior, or any who might this 